Welcome to Tim Stodds FM, where each week we discuss new ideas and tactics to help you succeed in business, relationships, and life. And now your host, Tim Stoddard. Hi, brother. We're recording. What's up, Glenn? Not much, man. Not much. Uh, trying to get my life juice going. I'm a recent convert, I guess you could say, to, to caffeine. Are you serious? Um, I'm, I'm team caffeine all the way. I do not I've understand heard. when people are like, the worst thing you can do is drink coffee in the morning. Well, especially because I'm sober, right? So I don't have sure. cigarettes. I got, I got nothing. I don't even drink soda anymore. I got coffee. And it's like, if anybody tries to fuck with my morning coffee, there's a big, big problem. No, I get it. I mean, my wife's heart doesn't start beating until, until she has her first cup. It doesn't matter if like houses on fire, children are on fire. She's, she's <laughs> yeah. making her way to the Nespresso machine. Um, no, I just, you know, I'm, I feel very lucky that I've never needed it, which is nice um, in the sense that, well, one, since I never really drank it, I never needed, like had a dependency, but also I think it's because I swam and played baseball in college. And so Mornings. Uh, I, my alarm clock from age 12 to 22 went off at 420 and I was in the water at five. And so mm-hmm. I've just kind of, not that that was enjoyable, but that's just kind of how I've always been programmed. So I guess I've never needed it, but I have been, I have discovered, um, kind of, you know, like you, I, I live fairly cleanly these days for a number of reasons, mostly small children and work, but uh, I try to use it as like a performance enhancing drug essentially, <laughs> which is because I do it not seldom, but not very regularly. I can pretty predictably know how it's going to affect me. And so I'll try to utilize it in that way, if that makes sense for some deep work or whatever it might be. Um but it's lovely. I enjoy it. I'll drink decaf all the time. My wife's like, you're disgusting. <laughs> it's wrong. What's the point? I'm like, no, I love the ritual and it tastes delicious. I just like, I can't do it at, she can do it at nine o'clock at night and then wave goodnight. I'm just like, what? It's crazy. Yeah. Crazy. I'm the same way. I didn't know you were a swimmer. My sister is actually a Pennsylvania state champ swimmer. So I'm well versed. Nice. The so you were part of that life. Yeah. Swimmers are crazy. It's swimmers and wrestlers. A lot of people think that like, I don't know, the football players are the toughest ones. No way. The swimmers and the wrestlers are by far the most mentally strong yeah. athletes out of all of them. I, I played all the sports, man. I did football. I was Me a quarterback. Too. I did the whole thing. Like it's, it, of course it's hard. Like, but swimming is ridiculous. It's hard. You know, it's, it's the longest season. It's seven hours a day. It's uh, training so that you can lose a race by a hundredth of a second once totally. a year. I know. It's um, it's something else, man. But it's also the greatest thing. I mean, you learn just an incredible amount of discipline, how much the little things matter. Yeah. I mean, I was a sprinter, so the difference between the flick. If you the flick, if you hit the wall like this versus like this, yep. I mean I that's it. Um, which is can really add up into a lot of therapy bills eventually, but no, it's, uh, it's great, man. I, 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 am very thankful for it. It's uh, it's good. That's really cool. Well, um, great. I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been following your brand for a while. You and I met, um, virtually through what was it? Yeah. The hustle. Um, yeah, that's right. The hustle thing. Yeah. And that was fun. So, uh, all right, let's get to it. I start my podcast with the same question every time the background picture to your Twitter bio. Tell me what it means to you. The back, uh, the, my, my, my photo or the background thing? The background image. 
shit, now I got to see what the hell it is. <laughs> Hold on. Hold on. What is it? Oh, okay. So that's from, uh, it's not my side business anymore. Um, so I've got this, uh, I've got two full-time jobs. My, my, well, besides being a dad and a, and a husband, um, my first job, which I've been doing for about seven years is I'm a screenwriter. Um, and that kind of led to my second job, which is this uh, media company. It's a newsletter and a podcast primarily called important, not important as we call it, uh, science for people who give a shit. Yeah. Uh, but the original tagline was what's on, uh, this background, which says the conversations most vital to our survival of this, as a species, um, which is supposed to be fairly tongue in cheek, but also, you know, it's not great outside. And that was before we all got locked inside. Um, and yeah, I guess I've just kind of kept it there, which is interesting. Um, but we still use it it's on t-shirts and stuff like that. It's, um, you know, I, I guess I should explain what it is first. Would you like me to do that? Would that be easier? Oh, yeah. Um, so my day job is, has been screenwriter for a while. I started my career is at the Financial Times. I worked for ESPN for a while. I did a bunch of startup advising, investing, things like that, digital, clean fluid, clean tech, things like that. Um, and then as I was writing, I write not primarily, but a lot of sci-fi and tech and science and things like that. Um, it's kind of what I came up and loved. Um, and so I have always made a habit of following what's the newest in science and technology and medicine and space and, and all that kind of stuff. Um, and I realized a few years ago, I was, because I was so proactive about that, seeing a lot of news that was really good and really not so good on the science front, um, that a lot of folks um, that both I care about, but also are inclined to care about those things weren't seeing. And I think it was primarily because they were getting their news from things like Facebook, which turned out to be a disaster. Um, but I just eventually was like, hey, I'm going to just throw together this little newsletter. I mean, just literally copy and pasted some things with, with some poll quotes. Here's the five or 10 like big things you missed this week. They're really good. They're really not so good. Send it out to some family and friends. It was basically an effort to stop them from yelling at me because I would just send article after article after article, which drives everybody crazy, which yeah. I get. Um, <clears throat> this was a way to consolidate it. And it was good. And I did, frankly, really didn't do that much with it for, for quite a while. And then um, it became a little more of a focus as more people got interested and friends and family forwarded on. And I tried to clean it up and make it look, I wouldn't say professional, but a little more like I, like I was trying. Um, and, you know, it eventually, it is, is continued evolving, I, I hope in a positive way. And it seems to be received that way um, in a way that is uh, got a little more of my voice in it. It's more of a, it's not just as much as my wife is so wonderful and such a big supporter. She goes, Oh, he's got a climate change podcast. Super helpful. Uh, it's not just climate change. It's probably 30, 40% specifically that, but obviously it touches so many things, but it's, you know, the easy ways, you know, it's all the scientific things that are going on that are also part of society and that could either just wipe us all out in the next 10 years or make everything a lot better. Right. So it's climate change and clean energy. It's cancer. It's COVID it's antibiotics. It's biotech. Um, it's artificial intelligence, things like that. It's the real stuff that's happening now. Um, and it evolved into, Hey, here are the, here are the, the sort of the big news for each of those categories, but also here are some real like generalist analysis thinking about 
not just what is happening, but how to think about those things um, individually and, and taken together because with everything changing so quickly all the time now, as we've all learned, um, science is, while it's always been part of our everyday lives since the enlightenment for better or worse, it is obviously much more specifically linked. We all follow 10 epidemiologists on Twitter now. Um, uh, it has become a way to, to really try to help people think about how to think about these things, how to, how to take them in, how to process them, how to act on them if they need to. And, and that's sort of been our last piece of the bread butter is these action steps, as we call it. We take really data-driven, um, specific, reputable action steps I spend a lot of time on and I verify with a lot of folks um, so that you can take action on those specific things that are happening. Because a lot of these things, sea level rise, whatever it might be, can feel fairly existential and seemingly like something that you could not affect. Um, but you can, and there's a portfolio of ways you can do that from individual actions to grander systemic things. Um, and so that kind of took off. And then the whole conversations, most vital to our survival as a species came about because um, we started to send this thing out weekly. It started to really take off. And um, I had a few friends who were like, great, I feel a little more up to speed. I feel like I'm starting to get, because a lot of these things, it's not like, see, there's not news that like sea level rise just happened this week. It's yeah. updates on how we understand it. It's these macro trends. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, you know, things like that, newer reporting or journals or whatever it might be. Um, and so folks would say, I, I'm getting it now. I feel like I'm more up to speed. I'm starting to understand how this is, how these currents are affecting my life or my elected officials or my business, my investments, my industry, whatever it might be. But I would like to understand this specific thing a lot more. Can you, can you do that? And I was like, well, here's the thing. And I've always tried to be very transparent. I'm a liberal arts major. I'm like a pagan atheist religion major who also studied sociology and anthropology. Cool. And my classes were like eight people and you couldn't hide. So it was a lot of question asking, right? And trying to understand first principles and trying to understand why people do what they do um, individually and on a societal level or in a group containment level. Um, and so I was like, I'm not a scientist. I've worked for newspapers and, and the media, but I'm not a journalist, I'm not an engineer, not a doctor. Um, I'm not building wind turbines. Um, but in a generalist way, again, I spend most of my week talking to those folks. And so I said, okay, well, let's make a podcast that complements a newsletter. It's not just more of a wrap up. It's a conversation about one really specific thing that's pulled from this moment, pulled from the news. And we bring on a really incredible far more capable human than I could ever be yeah. to educate me and us on it. I have a wonderful co-host and buddy, Brian, um, give us context for it. And then again, our bread and butter, we try to build towards these action steps that folks can take to support that person's mission to support or fight against something. Because again, if you're driving in your car, when people used to drive around in their cars um, and you're listening to people talk about climate change, for example, for an hour, it's real easy for that to get sad real fast. Yeah. And then you just kind of want to close your eyes and drift into traffic and yeah. whatever happens, happens. But science and research tells us if you are able to take action on something, it floods your brain with all these wonderful chemicals and you can see a tangible result. And eventually those things can add up into something big, right? And so 
we try to give you not just call your congressperson or donate to a charity, donate to this specific place because this is what they're doing. Here's the URL. This is how far your dollar will go. We've run it up against people who vet these things, Charity Navigator, GiveWell, whatever it might be. Or don't just call your congressperson. Call this specific number about this specific piece of legislation and why, and here's what it'll do. So we both want to give people the context and understand why they're doing something, but then give them the what so that they feel like they're taking this effective action. And if we're asking them to spend their money or to use some time, which is more valuable than money, um, that they feel like they're doing that in a way that, you know, it's a trustworthy source, that it's going to do something as far as things can go. So that's where it kind of came from, the conversations most vital to our survival as a species. The species is going to be fine no matter what happens, um, but it could get even darker out there, and a lot of folks are already suffering. Um, at the same time, we're on the cusp of some truly incredible things, yeah. you know? Um, and it's important to recognize those as well and try to support those as well. So uh, that's where my Twitter background pick comes from. That's a good one. Do you know, do you have you heard what I lead my podcast with? It's preposterous. And it goes with that. And one question I asked everybody is, why are you vital to the survival of the species? And <laughs> keep in mind, I talk to like the smartest people on the planet and most of them start off by laughing at me. Uh, and then I'm like, look, you're here for a reason. Be bold, be honest. And eventually you get this really awesome answer yeah. from them. And it's usually like, I'm not, but here's why my work is and here's exactly. what I hope to do with it. And eventually I'll get my act together and make sort of a composition because we've done 110 of these or whatever. Because it's just these wonderful things of people trying to find their way into this and make an impact and, and they're incredible and why they do what they do. And it's, it's a fun way to start off. So I like yours. That was great. Thanks, man. It takes a lot of the pressure off of me to think about like what to do. And um, oh, it's so much better than like, where are you from? Yeah, exactly. So I'm so glad that you brought up those action steps. It's probably my favorite thing about the content that you put out there because I agree as a scientist, you look at the, I'm not a scientist as a scientific minded person. You look at these carbon emission charts and the fucking thing is just parabolic. And you're like, the end of the world is coming. There's nothing we can do. We got another 300 years. I might as well just be as happy as I can be. Right. But those real simple. So in the same respect, I, I guess I would consider myself an individualist if that's a thing. I think that in almost every case, the solution to big problems is every single person trying to solve it for themselves. Like I, I really believe in, I think it was Mother Teresa, if everybody swept their front porch, the whole world would be clean, something like that. Mm -hmm. And so I remember it was probably about a year ago, I listened to one of the podcasts you had um, about antibiotics. And antibiotics I find really, really fascinating, just how blindly we pop antibiotics without actually thinking about the fact that these germs, well, viruses in particular, they're the most like quickly evolving things in the history of the world. It's why they run shit the way that they do. And so I remember going to the doctor one time, it's just a cold and he prescribed me a Z-Pack. I was like, no, 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 I don't need that. And he goes like, but this is what you take to feel better. And I'm just like, I'm going to be fine. I'm not going to yeah. die. And in the long run, like when I'm actually sick, an antibiotic will work as opposed to just building up immunities to these super germs. So that's just one example. I'm not necessarily trying to veer the conversation into antibiotics, although I welcome it if, if that's hot on your mind right now. But for me, living my life in a way where I know I have the, the 
like critical thinking skills in part of these action steps that I've chosen to take in my life where it's like, okay, do I actually need to pop a Z pack? And is that making the world a better place? And most of the time the answer is no. And I just really believe that if you do that, you know, 300 million times across the country in 10 years, this kind of thinking might start to come up. And then, you know, 50 years from now, we won't have a super virus that just fucking because that stuff is real you know we talk about it in science fiction but like viruses aren't (laughs) yeah like it's not like a fake thing that we talk about they are real things they really make people sick so that one small example i believe is a good representation of what the action steps that you're you're taking are oh i appreciate it man i mean look yeah it's Antibiotics is one of those things. So, you know, antibiotics affect uh, bacteria-driven infections. They don't, you know, they don't, that's one of the confusing things. It doesn't work with, with viruses specifically. Yeah, bacteria. Right. Um, and that's one of, th- one of the issues is, you know, when COVID started, a bunch of people went in and said, like, I, I want ZPAC or whatever. Me and doctors yeah. were describing. Yeah, I misspoke. <clears throat> misspoke. Totally fine. What I mean, I, there is enough going on. This is the point. It's impossible to fucking keep track of all this stuff. Yeah. Excuse my F-bomb. Um, and it's really hard when most medical professionals who are well-meaning are trying to help you feel better, you know? And so you, you go in and you trust them. And most of the time they can, can be trusted, but at the same time, you know, we, we have messed this place up in a thousand ways in such a short period of time, like relatively where it's like we get the industrial revolution and we start building a lot of stuff and the environment was pretty okay before that um, relatively. And then, you know, Look at the difference. The biggest difference between World War One and World War Two is penicillin, right? You can take all the machinery out of it, but that is the biggest difference. Why we stopped having to saw everybody's legs off when they got, you know, a bull in the ankle. Um, it's it makes a difference, but the problem is, is we as a species suck these things up and go great, and then we just use them as much as we can whenever we can, just so we have with trees and water and land and whatever it might be. Um, so they're amazing, but then you know, yes, there's. A really big things happening, but there's also research that needs to be brought to the front and news where you see things like, hey, listen, the the antibiotic, you know, uh, I think it's amoxicillin that we traditionally use for a strep throat really isn't working as well as it has in the past. And that is going to have secondary effects and become something else besides the fact that strep throat just sucks and some kids really suffer from it, you know, chronically these are problems that we create that eventually become much bigger things. And then all of a sudden the seas are rising, you know? So I, I try to, to look at those and not just like pick obscure things out, but go like, Hey, listen, like you were saying, like, this is part of your everyday life. You can make a decision on this, but also because, so for instance, one of the things we get, and sorry to sort of bounce around on this, but you know, we'll get questions a lot from folks going, it's usually two questions about the action steps. One is you've, you've supplied the same action step twice this month, right? Or this action step isn't the one that's going to like really move the needle. It needs to be X. Yeah. And my answer to both is if we're repeating it, it's because it's something that's really actually going to move the needle. Um, and two, you might not see the big systemic one every time, because what I've tried to do over time is help you build, and we're working on tools to do this. When I say we, it's me and my rescue dog, um, build essentially your, Tim, like your portfolio of actions of things you care about. 
because for so many of these systemic issues, whether it's climate change or antibiotics or COVID, um, we really have to throw the kitchen sink at these things. And so it requires you not only sweeping off your porch, but going around to your neighbors and helping them understand why it's important for us all to sweep off our porch. And then also talking to your local officials, your city councils or your school boards, and helping them understand why it's important for their messaging and maybe their uh, legislation or the way they conduct their businesses for businesses to sweep off their porches because it benefits X and Y and Z. And then taking that further, because if we don't do the full scope, then it's not going to change. But at the same time, we have to understand, I mean, there's this term greenwashing that's out there, which is essentially, I mean, for it's, it's fossil fuel companies, you know, pretending that they're doing better than they are, Mm -hmm. uh, that they're the answer to the problem. They're the problem, but they've also done this thing for 60 years where they make you feel like the problem is your fault. And in some ways you can look at it superficially and go like, sure, I am the one who used that energy. I guess it was my fault, but at the same time, you didn't have a choice when we could have had a choice all along. And so it's important to look at it and go, these are forces that are acting up upon me and upon all of us all the time. And so what is the most effective way for us to fight back? Yeah. It's for you to get solar panels, sure, but we are a you know, a tribal species. Your neighbor's gonna look at those and knock on your door and go like, yep. where'd you get the solar panels? What's the deal? Are you saving money? Are they effective? Do you have the same power? It starts a conversation that continues on. And these things can, can don't always turn into marching in the streets can turn into elected officials or candidates for office going, you got to listen to the people, you know, they've got this on their mind and these are the actions they're taking. We need to do our part to formalize that so that it makes a bigger systemic impact to make sure these companies can't do that sort of thing. Um, so yeah, it, I, I am a believer in individual actions, individual actions, but um, at some point, you know, because these problems are so big, those need to be focused in a way that it'll eventually turn into regulation if it's necessary or incentives if it's necessary, whatever it might be, to really move the bigger needle of things. Um, But it's got to start from the bottom. You know, it has to. Okay. There's two things I want to go to here. And you actually just touched on it with that last sentence, which is I go back and forth in my mind a lot as to what the solution to these things are. Is it open markets, whereas people are just incentivized to make better decisions that will help? I mean, clean energy is the easy one, right? If you make clean energy cheaper than fossil fuels, everybody's going to use clean energy. So that's one option. Or is it more of like a, I hate to use the S word, but more of like a a socialistic government legislation route where like we have to force these decisions on companies who clearly, if given the option, are just going to do what's most beneficial for them, right? Um, I, I, sometimes I look at it and I say like, yes, clearly the answer is free markets. Make the option better for people somehow. And it's, it's pretty clear that I think wind is cheaper than, than fossil fuels. It's just pushing the electricity to them is a little bit more difficult. Or... Do you just say like, hey, all you companies need to stop doing what the fuck you're doing. Here's the legislation that we wrote. Stamp it. There's two ways to go. The answer is probably a combination of both, right? If we're being realistic. But if if there is one route that you think is more of a direct path to living life with more sustainable and symbiotic energy, which route do you think we got to go? Uh, 
Yeah, it's it's both a simple and a complicated question. And, and you've got some, you know, great thoughts about that. And it's great when people are wrestling with it. You know, it's it's hard when people go like, this is the way. Yeah. Um, the problem with folks who are um, inherently devoted to the free market way is that has basically been the bulk of the way for the past 45 years or so, at least on the, in the United States, uh, federally. And, um, everything is on fire and the seas are rising. So on that front, the receipts are a little bit in as far as how well that has worked. Um, not yeah, to like, say there hasn't. Sounds great, but this is what's sounds happened so great. far. Everybody's locked in their living room. It's not great, <laughs> you know? Um, that's not to say there isn't a place for it, of course. I mean, we're never going to be able to separate the fact that um, a corporation as an entity, its purpose is to provide value and profit to its shareholders, right? That's, that, that is why they exist, right? Mm-hmm. Um, especially public corporations. But we can't get rid of that sort of fundamental first principle. That would be a, a different conversation. And that's where you go into a country or a society that is that is much more explicitly founded on more socialist principles. And there's room for that. There's no perfect system to this thing, right? It's a great Winston Churchill quote, I think. Yeah. It's like democracy, only, democracy it's, I can't remember what it is. It's like democracy is only great because nothing else is any good, whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, but so you've got that, which is, a bunch of corporations in a free market, predominantly led by white men in a system designed by white men, has not fared well for everyone. Um, and the folks that predominantly are not involved or not stakeholders or definitely not leading those companies are the ones that are suffering first and most. Yeah. So we have to go, okay, are we talking about, you know, is individual liberty really the thing that matters the most here in profits or is it the societal good and this contract that we sort of have with each other? Mm-hmm. And this is something that America is always going to wrestle with just because of America and the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also ways to look at these things and go, okay, so if this is the immovable pieces, then how do we put regulation in um, and make transparent reporting standards that acknowledge all the externalities that are out there um, so that these companies can exist and be profitable and be successful, but also contribute in a much more practical and transparent way to the greater good. And And that's where you... I'm so sorry, let me interrupt there, but you hit on externalities, which I think is something that is, is so freaking important. It's not actually what you build. It's not the cost of what you build. It's the cost of the byproduct of what it takes to build the thing. So like almond farming... It's such a simple example. If the almond farmers were actually in charge of paying for the externality, which is like the sinking land in California, because creating one tiny almond creates a gallon, uses a gallon of water, which blows my mind every time I think about it, then like, you know, the free market of almond farming wouldn't exist because if the almond farmers are in charge of paying for the externalities that their product creates, there's no market for it. So, and that's the thing about the free market thing is if this thing was exactly. a level playing field, they would be blown out of the water, but exactly. it's not. And that's like, we've subsidized fossil fuels to trillions of dollars over the past, however long um, we do it every year still. Um, so when they're just like, let the market ride it out, it's like, but it hasn't. And that's the thing is because totally. you've been cheating basically. The it's entire like Jerry rigged in a way. 
Yeah, for sure. And again, not only have you gotten these subsidies, but again, you haven't had to pay for the externalities no. whatsoever. And that is an increasing thing. And that's how, so when we start to talk about, okay, so if corporations are still going to exist and still going to do their thing, how do we make them part of this greater good and make them responsible for it in a positive and for their purpose, I guess, a negative way, which is started with ESG, which kind of doesn't really mean much. And you can see like, if Exxon has five women on their board, they might qualify for ESG, whatever that might mean, but they're still like destroying the planet. So that has to get stricter. And you're starting to see that, not surprisingly, in Europe more, where they're starting to uh, enact these standards that everyone's still trying to figure out that are much more transparent and they go into insurance and they go into financing and they go into all these pieces um, so that it's more apples to apples along the way. Um, and that's where you're gonna start to see both the stick, which at this point is just necessary, you know, um, or and you're also gonna see some carrots, which is, guess what? If you can turn your company around or you can start a new company or you can reinvent yourselves um, to be more progressive, to take responsibility, like you said, the byproducts, which the technical term for a lot of that is scope three emissions. You know, it's what do your users do with your product? Mm -hmm. um, and you can't ignore that. You have to be responsible for that. We don't want to a lot of times because we corporations like to ignore the social contract part, which is like what people do with their stuff is their choice. That's not on us. But at this point, it has to be. Yeah. Um, and that's where you see companies like IKEA going, ESG is kind of whatever it is. And there's these new standards coming. But we re recognize that not only are we responsible for Scope one, which is like, what is the power our company uses? Yeah. Can we buy solar power? Great. Or or tech companies do with data centers. That's great. I'm glad it's solar. But when, for instance, IKEA and, and Apple and Walmart, which are probably the three biggest ones to both take this on and responsible for it, are going, okay, we're going to actually try to tackle our scope three stuff, which is the manufacturers and the assemblers and the power they're using. And where do the products come from? Who's making those products? Who's shipping them? Who is packaging them? What is the yep. packaging like? And then how is it being used? Are they being recycled? Are they being reused? And that is, I mean, I don't envy these companies. Like it's hard. You got to build and build and build without having to think about that. And now someone's going, now you have to, because we're fucked. Um, that's a hard one, but we need them to do it. And the carrot is if you do it, you'll actually probably become more profitable in the long run. Totally. A lot of these guys aren't going to be able to do it or they're not going to try and they're out, man. Um, so, and then also, by the way, again, people will look at you and go, thank you for doing the right thing. I'll buy more of your products. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, it's going to prove itself out. And it's going to be ugly. Like this transformation and transition, um, we need it to be much more just for a lot of the folks who are already suffering because of what essentially white men have been able to do for 400 years. But at the same time, um, you know, we have to properly design this thing for the external externalities that are already happening but also looking forward to the future and going, how can these companies still exist and profit and succeed? But we have to, we have to be candid about what we know and what we know may be coming down the road or else game's up, man. Totally. You know, it's, it's going to be rough. Um, there's a great quote. Um, there's a science writer for the Atlantic uh, named Ed Yong, who's incredible. Um, uh, he wrote, uh, he's written a couple books. He's working on another one. He came sort of out of his sabbatical this year to write a lot about COVID. And he had this great quote, which is essentially COVID is this flood that exposed all the cracks that already existed in our design. Yeah. And it's true. You know, it exposed 
the choices we've made about pre-existing conditions and healthcare and, and supply chains. And I know you work, do a ton of work in healthcare. And it's that like, we thought we were ready. And in fact, we were entirely unprepared for these things, or we had dug holes that have been entirely, you know, taken advantage of by a virus that everyone is susceptible to. And so now it's awful. What's happened is, is just terrible. Um, and a lot of it was preventable, but now we get to look at those and go, these are the real problems and we have to fix these things um, from supply chains to, to public health. So there's an opportunity think, there. Yeah. Okay. You said opportunity there. I, I try my best where every time I, I went through a phase where I, I honestly just couldn't, and I'm kind of ashamed to say it because I, I like to think of myself as like a realist. And if I see a problem, the best thing to do is address it. Right. But I really went through a phase where there was just so much coming at me. I had to not look at it and kind of bury my head in the sand. Um, and, you know, eventually I like mustered up the courage. It happened. I go to a float tank once a week. I don't know if you ever do that, like a meditation thing. And I haven't, but it sounds amazing. Yeah. I, I mean, I any, really... Anywhere where my kids aren't asking me for snacks. Like... <laughs> yeah. And so uh, I had every once in a while, you get like a real good realization in one of those things. And I had that realization of just like, look, this is the reality. Not facing it isn't going to change how it affects you. So I might as well learn about it. And one of the one of the, as I started really diving in, I became half afraid and half optimistic because there still is this. So there were, let me get specific for a second. When you talk, there were two things that really came out. There was energy and there was food. And I read somewhere, and I think it was Elon Musk who put the science together. So I'm always a little bit like skeptical as to whether he's like pitching his company or if it's actual science. But it sure. seemed pretty legit where we could build like a three by three mile solar farm in Nevada in the middle of the desert and basically power the whole country. And so I'm thinking to myself, like, this is so stupid. If the solution's right there, then what's the issue? So there's the power problem. And then the food problem is something that we obviously realize because we need food all the time, but how food is created in the country and the topsoil that we get rid of and the land that we have to um, flatten basically, which, you know, causes all those secondary and third problems where like you lose the trees, you lose the carbon recycling, and then the flat land bounces the photons off the earth, which then, you know, it's like a big cyclical cycle, a big cyclical problem, excuse me. So what I'm getting at is I read all of these problems and then I started reading these amazing solutions where it's like, okay, the food problem can be solved pretty, pretty quickly with some of the indoor uh, farming. And there's actually a company I looked at in Kentucky, which is doing some amazing stuff. And then um, the power problem, it's not that hard. Like it seems pretty realistic that we can power the entire country through solar. So what are some of the actual solutions that aren't just feel-good stories that people are working on where it seems like we can do this and this is good? Yeah, I mean, this is like one of my wife's like both favorite and least favorite things about this this role in my life, which is I get to kind of be the bummer in every any conversation, mm. <laughs> whatever it might be. Mm. But look, these things are, um, we are lucky that they are within our, capabilities for the most part for the first time ever really yeah. look we could have had solar a long time ago we could have really had wind we could have had electric cars a long time ago food doesn't need to be this issue etc cetera, etc cetera. the obviously our the american healthcare system and health insurance doesn't need to be this way it could have been easier 
all these people didn't need to have these pre-existing conditions, but we gave them junk food and we made them live next to fossil fuel refineries, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, they're very doable. Yeah. And we're very lucky to have things like for climate, um, you know, the drawdown organization, they've done a tremendous job really quantifying this stuff and looking at the best ways we can do these things. Drawdown. It's fantastic. Um, can't recommend it enough. Um, uh, it, it can really help you understand, and it, some of it's really surprising um, in a wonderful way of, of what literally what the most effective things are is explicitly focused on reducing emissions. And that's a whole other conversation we can have about this net zero stuff. But but the number one thing we have to do, no matter what, whatever it is, is reducing emissions. It's not canceling them out. It's not buying offsets. All that stuff is super important. Again, I'm kitchen sink. Invest in new technologies we need to scale later. Do all that shit but we have to reduce them, number one, as fast as possible yesterday, right? And so that's what Drawdown is inherently focused on. Um, but at the same time, it's uh, it's very, very complicated. You know, um, you know, if you want sort of the 101 on this stuff, uh, let's say, let's start with power, for example. Um, I, would, uh, I would really pay attention to um, folks like Leah Stokes, Dr. Leah Stokes at UC Santa Barbara. Uh, she wrote a book called Short Circuiting Policy mm. that helps you understand not only how our entire power generation system works, but all the ways we have failed to enact policy uh, on a state and a federal level to deal with that and why that's so difficult. Because once you get into the enacting policy part, it's incredibly complicated. You have situations like Texas, Texas. Um, and her book came out a year ago, year and a half ago. Um, you know, talking about how essentially, you know, the power companies wrote the legislation and that happens all the time. Turns out that's not great. Um, and that happens in California and that's happening with natural gas companies everywhere and things like that. Um, and, you know, you can also read uh, David Roberts at Volts. He used to be at Vox. Uh, he's fantastic. He's done a whole, um, uh, his whole thing is on energy uh, production and transmission. And uh, he, he's incredibly smart, incredibly um, uh, readable. Um, and, you know, to, to, to bring that together with Texas and Leah and David and, and uh, you know, three by three solar plant in the, in the desert, totally true. The problem is, is, so if you look at Texas, for example, um, you know, what really happened is most of their natural gas went down. And you had a couple windmills that froze. Guess what? They didn't have to because there's stuff running up in the Midwest and in uh, yeah. you know uh, Northern Europe. That's totally fine. So that's ridiculous. Um, one of the biggest problems is starting with three by three thing in the desert is when we build exclusively centralized power, you are inherently putting a lot of eggs in one basket that anything can happen to. You know. Um, as we saw in Texas, it's easy to be like, well, when is a polar vortex going to happen again? But actually they had a terrible winter snap 10 years ago. And everybody said, you gotta, you gotta harden that system. Yeah. You gotta fix transmission. And they were like, again. we're deregulated. It's all market driven. We're going to be fine. It wasn't clearly people suffered, people died, people froze, people in the dark, people don't have water. I mean, in Jackson, Mississippi, they're, they're still on a boil water notice. Um, so we should absolutely build huge solar farms and huge offshore and onshore wind farms. But one of the best ways to protect ourselves against accidents or natural disasters or 
uh, cyber hacking, which is happening. I mean, Florida has had it happening for the past year, is to really decentralize a lot of this stuff as much as we can, which is community solar. It's a metric fuck ton of batteries everywhere in homes and businesses, again, in on the industrial level, um, for when the sun isn't shining and the wind isn't blowing for emergencies um, so that we can run things at the peak level. Um, look, like you said, solar in most parts of the world is now the cheapest energy we've ever seen. Like, it's incredible. It's blowing away expectations. I think it's ahead of the international uh, energy uh, projections by like 50 to 100 years, which is crazy. Um, that's great. Now we just have to build it out everywhere. We have to make sure it's accessible. We have to make sure that people that have it are able to actually make some money off of it so they can feed it back into the grid. Yeah. But that means not just building the solar plant, but completely rebuilding and hardening our transmission everywhere. Um, on a federal level and on a regional level, we've basically got three grids. We've got an east grid, a west grid, and the Texas, Texas. grid. East and west are sort of connected. Texas has sort of declined to be, and that's how that went. Nobody could help them out. You know, when you're disconnected, you're disconnected. Um, but we've also got to do things like, you know, in California, it's okay. Um, if these, um, you know, power stations are the things that are starting some of these fires that eventually burn towns and cities and lives and homes, um, what do we do about that? And then you look at it and go, oh, all of California's power lines are above ground. And you run the cost on what it'll take to bury those and go, oh my God, like it's it's like a trillion dollars. It, it's, it's an absolutely crazy amount of money. But you look at what we just spent dealing yeah, with these wildfires and disasters. Totally. Right, and this kind of comes to our lizard brains and our, our the difficulties we have for a million reasons in looking forward and planning yeah. for the future. Um, and it's really hard, but we're at the point now where we have to do things. These things aren't optional. And that's why I say we have to do the kitchen sink thing. Um, do we need to suck carbon out of the air? Of course, but we have to get rid of the existing emissions that we're putting out every single day first. We have to stop making the problem. You, you, yes, you want to put dirt back in the hole, but you got to stop digging. You know, like it doesn't matter how much you put back in if you're still digging. So we have to stop that. Of course, you want to do all the other things. And of course, we want to bury the power lines. And of course, we want Texas uh, to not just rely on natural gas, which just explodes all the time. It's entirely unprofitable and has been from the beginning. Um, you know, we have to do all these things, but it's complicated. I wish we could just build the thing in the desert. And we should build the thing in the desert. But we should also put it on everyone's homes. And we should make that a requirement that it's put on all new homes. But then we have to build the pipes to make sure that stuff is going to work in a smart way in an efficient way and in a safe way. Um, so it's complicated, but there's incredibly smart people that are working on this and, you know, sports analogy, like I've been training for this day my entire life. There are power nerds who have been getting ready for this day for 10 years going like, this is what we can do. This is how you retrofit buildings. This is how you retrofit homes. This is how you uh, build these lines. This is how you can pass policy in an effective way. Um, we just have to choose to do it, you know, yeah. up and down the up and down the thing. So it's okay to be optimistic. We can do these things, but it's also important to acknowledge the reality of how difficult it is on a number of levels. I yeah, I agree. I think the the biggest problem is something that you can't measure. It's a mindset thing because the last time the United States of America got together with one mission, we were pumping out B fifty twos like every four minutes or something like that, yeah. and. And we built highways 
that connected the, I mean, the reason why the North won the civil war is because we decided to invest in telegrams and train tracks. And it was why we could transport troops back and forth. I say, we, I'm a Northerner. They let, let that one come out. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but when we really, really put our mind to it, the infrastructure can be done. We've proven that many, many, many times when there's something where as a country, there's like a collective unconscious that says like, this isn't optional. We have to get this done. And that's the part that um, I, I believe we're getting there. I think the public lexicon and the conversations that we're having is pretty clear. Even people that maybe traditionally would be right wing, which I don't even know if that necessarily means like, I don't believe in climate change, but I think we can correlate it to most of the people that don't believe in climate change or on that side of the aisle. Right. And I think even those people are starting to have conversations saying like, one, it's better to do this because it's more profitable. It's more energy efficient. You know, even what you were saying with batteries, one of the cool things about solar is the cells that we're creating now can store this power so well. And so it doesn't just constantly burn off, like you can hold power in batteries. And, um, and on top of that, I think we all want to live in a world that isn't polluted. <laughs> like pollution is shitty. We love blue skies and, and green grass. And, uh, and yeah, I think the hard thing though is, and, and sorry to interrupt it, is, is that uh, folks that look like you and me, uh, designed a system where a, a small minority of people and an increasingly small and increasingly powerful minority of people, uh, very much in this country, internationally, but very much in this country, are the only ones with with blue skies. Um, you know, um, it's something like I'm going to mangle this, but you know, 60 to 70 percent of of uh, folks, black and brown folks in this country, live within a couple miles of a fossil fuel refinery. And that's from systems that are designed around redlining and real estate and insurance. Um, you know, as they say, it's, it's, it's slavery by any other name. And if, uh, if Congress on the national level is still mostly white lawyers who are men, yeah, um, especially in the Senate, if it's, if the Senate is mostly uh, designed, you know, the Senate as it was designed was to, just like the filibuster was to placate white Southerners. Um, you know, if it remains that way where they, you know, where if we have plus the vice president right now, you know, they represent something like 50 million people than the 49 votes, um, it's going to be dysfunctional unless we proactively and radically involve inclusive voices that have been, you know, folks like to use the word vulnerable, but they're not vulnerable. They've been marginalized like again it was designed this way and if we don't include those perspectives because they have been dealing with this this entire time and increasingly so and they know what it feels like on the day-to-day -day level uh then we're just not going to fix it because those people aren't incentivized to fix it i mean you saw you know the the republicans who spoke up uh in the senate uh, against um hopefully future secretary uh uh of the interior hayland um you know it's easy to see how much oil and gas money those folks bring in every year. I mean, yeah. we can track all that stuff now. And as long as that is an option, as long as that is happening, they don't care if other people have blue skies and clean air and clean water and clean food. And it's easy to say, well, I'm sure they do. Except again, you know, the receipts are in and, and, and they don't. And, you know, I keep coming back to it and I don't want to seem like radicalized about this, but I'm getting there, which is, 
gun control. We had a situation where uh, a school of kindergartners was murdered with assault weapons. And if a country were to ever come together to pass legislation to prevent that from happening again, it would be after a school of kindergartners mm-hmm. was shot to death. And it not only did it not happen, but something like 46 of 50 states have looser gun control in the laws than they do now. And it's similar when you look at climate and when you look at COVID, right? We continue, and by we, I mean the folks that are in power, which again, look like you and me, not implicating you, I'm just saying we have to be transparent and it's our job now to do everything we can because uh, the mortality rate among, first of all, the infected rate, among black, brown, Asian, and indigenous people was higher because they're living in working conditions. Mm -hmm. Their hospitalized rate was higher, anywhere from two to four times higher because of pre-existing conditions they had. And those are from their living in their working conditions and terrible access to clean food and affordable food and clean and air, uh, affordable water, um, food deserts, the whole thing. and then they died at a two to four times higher rate because uh, doctors don't listen to them. And that's in the research that's been proven. Uh, mostly white doctors don't listen to them. Only 5% of doctors in the US are black. Um, and because these pre-existing conditions add up, these don't have one morbidity. These people have two or three. And that complication means when a virus comes along that affects the cardiovascular, cardiopulmonary system, they're going to die. And they did. And so that is what's been happening for the past year. And then maybe the greatest scientific achievement of all time is these RMNA or mRNA vaccines, right? And we rolled them out anywhere from six to seven years faster than anyone ever predicted. It's really incredible. Um, they're more effective than anything we could have ever predicted. We rolled them out. And in the first three months, black and brown people are getting them at a devastatingly lower rate than white folks, despite everything we just watched happen for the past year, which is that these people are infected, hospitalized, and killed two to five to four times more than everybody else. And still, we don't prioritize them uh, for giving them the thing that can protect their lives when they're making our food, they're farming our food, they're harvesting our food, they're delivering your food, they're working in the hospitals. Um, we continue, the people who are in charge, continue at every level to choose not to do the right thing for the greater good, to honor that social contract that we theoretically have. And that's the kind of thing that radicalizes not just young people and people of color and indigenous people, uh, but should radicalize people like us who claim to care about those things. Because again, when the receipts are in over and over and over and over at some time, at some point you go, you have to build anew. You don't just build back. You don't do this. You need new people in charge who understand what this is like who understand what it's like to suffer and we keep making them suffer and we can do better. And you can be optimistic. We can put people in charge. You know, we can put people like Lauren Underwood in Congress. She's a black nurse. She's amazing. She's trying to deal with uh, infant and maternal uh, mortality issues where in Illinois, her home state, black moms die in pregnancy and after pregnancy, it's six times the rate of white women. And if it was twice as bad, you would go, that's not great. Twice as bad is real bad. Right. Something is amiss. Six times as bad is when you go, oh, that's a system that's designed to work that way. 
And so you need to elect a young black woman who is also a nurse, who can speak all these sides of it, who knows people who's been affected. And that person now gets to be in charge because we fucked it up so bad. And they get to go, this is what has to happen. And yeah. we are just at that point where that's what we have to do. It's, it's, um, it's time to build 3.0. Yeah, I'm, I'm on your side with this for sure. And uh, we're running out of time. I just have one more thing that I wanted to. Yeah, sorry to go on tangents. About no, I'm it. glad it's, that um, you did, man. I'm really glad that you did. Like these are hard conversations to have. And, and we're friends on Twitter. And I appreciate when I see you just speaking up about things that make people uncomfortable to hear, but is obviously the truth. And, um, and that's like important shit, right? And just one of the things that I noticed in this conversation, you said people are suffering maybe like four or five times. And everything that I brought up from a higher level, like systematic, how do we get to this? It seems like every single time you bring it back down to like, this is affecting individual people. And I wonder where that comes from for you on a personal level. How come some people that can see it from a, a higher level, a systematic, whether it's the solution is free markets, whether the solution is legislation, whatever. And then I think it's so important to remember that we're not just talking about higher level concepts. We're talking about individual families and people. And I totally forget to do that basically every day. I, I, I forget that a lot, unless we're talking about addiction, right? Because then that's real to me. And I've, I've done sure, all that's of That's why that. you're clean, right? Yeah. And I've done all of that service work with like individual people who've been strung out on heroin and on the street. And it's like, not just the problem of opiate epidemics but like you you as a person like let me help you so if, if we could finish this off and again um take as much time as you want because i know we're running out of time where does that i'm doing okay cool where does that empathy come from um uh you know man i feel like a lot of places um but increasingly requires practice. I think it's a lot of things, man. I had the greatest grandparents in the world and they, they, you know, are the ones who did things like signs like that, work hard yeah. and be nice to people. It's, yeah. it's not that, it's not that hard. Um, I think it's, um, I grew up, uh, and you know, um, 50% of my, my high school was, was black and a lot of kids were on free lunch. Did I recognize that enough in the moment? No, I mean, of course not. I was a privileged white kid. Um, but a lot of my friends uh, are black, uh, team moms, librarians, whatever it might be. Yeah, like I saw that a lot too. But but I clearly, transparently, like, do not did not do enough to to appreciate that and understand that and empathize with that by any stretch. Uh, nowhere close. How much a young kid can, I think, comes a lot down to what they're told to read and how their parents raise them. And my parents did a fantastic job, but um, yeah, I, I think that's part of it. I think it's, um, you know, I've lived the past 11 years in Los Angeles. Um, homelessness is a, a true epidemic there. Um, yeah. The city and county have done so little to deal with it. There's about 60,000 people on the streets. 6,000 of them are veterans, which should just be a crime where you should be put away forever if, that, if you have one person on the street. Um, I, I grew up, I mean, where I grew up, where I am now, I mean, I'm above a movie theater in Colonial Williamsburg. Um, we're surrounded by military here. One of my best friends is a submarine captain. I think, you know, when you hear about the VA having issues, it's like, not, not only should these people not be struggling for care, but they should have like sci-fi level fucking care, totally. right? If they're going to make that 
choice and make that sacrifice for us. That's a different conversation, but I think that's a little part of it, seeing that he is missed, uh, again, like middle to, middle to slightly upper class, like white family, they're fine, but he, he is, goes underwater and hides essentially to keep us safe. And that means he's missed most of his kids' youth, right? That's a sacrifice. Uh, live in Los Angeles, you see this all the time. I've lived in London and Spain. I spent time in the Middle East to see that kind of suffering. Uh, again, you know, studying anthropology and sociology and religion and stuff and, and seeing how people live with a lot less than we do here um, and they're okay. Um, and at the same time, we make it seem very difficult here uh, when it's it shouldn't be for folks that look like us. Um, and I also think it's just, it's exposing yourself to these things proactively, which is something that folks like you and me have to do because it's very easy to be in this bubble and not do it, totally. even if you're not consciously doing it. And then not only exposing yourself doing it, but making, putting your, what's all the talk in, on, on Twitter for nerds like us, right? Building in public. Like you have to build yourself in public. And for white guys, it's not just like how much you write every day or, or your podcast or your growth numbers or whatever. It's saying like, I am benefiting from a system that is designed to look but from people like me for 400 years. And that's why I get to sit here and, and write blog posts every day. You know, that's crazy. This whole important, not important thing is nowhere near profitable, uh, but I can bootstrap it because I am, I have this screenwriting life and because my wife is incredibly supportive and works so hard and is so talented and is so great. And I can do that. There's so many people that can't do that. Yeah. You can start a blog for free, but most people can't find the time to, to do that. Sure. You know, my kids go to one of the, very few good public schools in Los Angeles. Uh, most of them are awful because we spend half as much per student as New York does. Um, very few good public schools. There's a thousand uh, kids at the school from K to five. And still most of them are on free lunch. A number of them are, are straight up homeless. Um, there's no school nurse and uh, the parents pay for every one of the enrichment, art, music, gym, dance, whatever it might be. Wow. Um, and that's in one of the few good ones, right? There's 700,000 students in that school district. And so you, you, you have to proact. If you are not exposed to this, if this isn't your life, yeah. you have to proactively put yourself there and read the hard things and, and go into soup kitchens or volunteer, whatever it might be, do look at the statistics and go do the real math on it. Like six times black women are dying and white women go like, do the math on that. Like, why is it, it is the 21st century. And like, you're going to find out, like you said, your, your, your wife said a hard, but not catastrophic pregnancy. That's rough. Pregnancy is wild, man. Birth is wild. Like we've been doing it for a few hundred thousand years and it's still fucking hard. We got all these tools and doctors and all this stuff. It's crazy. We had some hard ones. We had massive infertility issues. We were incredibly privileged to be able to afford to make our way through those. Wow. Um, thankfully to science. But at the same time, most people can't afford to do that, can't afford to do that. And then they still die at six times the rate. You know, you still see these uh, the, these incredibly brave and transparent things published by Beyonce and Serena Williams, incredibly smart, driven, profoundly wealthy, uh, know their bodies probably better than you and I ever could, despite mm -hmm. how many athletes. You think somebody knows their body better than Serena Williams? You're fucking wrong, right? Mm -hmm. And yet she was sitting on the floor of the bathroom in her hospital room, bleeding out because the doctor didn't believe her about what's happening with her body. Like if that's happening to her, what about all these other women that, that they don't listen to, you know, cause 5% of doctors are black and the rest just don't listen. And if, if you don't proactively expose yourself and take part in it, 
and something you know we've tried to do with the podcast and, and I'm getting ready to I mean on bandwidth level transparently share this stuff as much as we can like 60% of our guests are women 75% of our guests are either women and or people of color and that can be so much better and we're trying to make it better but if you don't sit there and just fucking listen and start off the conversation for however many listeners you have saying if you're new here, I want to be clear. I'm having this conversation from the perspective of, of a privileged white man, and I'm, I'm here to listen. And it's, we, we position it as a conversation, not an interview, because I want to be able to step in and say, this is my experience, and this is how it conflates with that. Tell me how I can do better and how I can take action to move that thing. Because mm-hmm. it doesn't matter if you just sit there and listen. you got to do something about it. And it just it, it matters. If we built this thing, then we have to help make it better. And, um, you know, despite how many of these incredible voices have been elevated and have had a spotlight on them, um, they're still not the people in charge. And, and, and that continues to be the case because it's a flywheel that just reinforces itself until we break it. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm happy to, to break that, um, as much as I can, because it's just, I don't know, man, maybe it's having kids, you know, feeling lucky that I was able to have the kids I had. Uh, that I have, <laughs> I haven't kicked them out yet. Um, but, you know, we did this interview uh, with a woman, uh, Bina Venkatarman, who is the, she's an author of a book called The Optimist Telescope, which you would love. Um, she's also now the uh, editor for the opinions page of the Boston Globe, incredibly smart. And she had this quote uh, in her book that really focused some things for me. and and that maybe we're floating around the either before. And it's essentially, she asks herself over and over, how do I be a better ancestor? Wow. And that's really specific, right? And I said, oh, that's great. And she's like, look, I don't have kids. I'm, I'm, I'm not having kids, but I've got nieces and nephews and things like that. And I look to them and go, how can I help them right now and set them up for the future? Because brown kids that look like her in this country haven't had the greatest experience. But what can she do? Because somehow through incredible hard work and intelligence and creativity, she's risen to a place where she can start to move that needle. But she needs guys like us to do 6x the work, right? Mm -hmm. And if you can frame it that way and go, how do I be a better ancestor? I can look at my privileged little white kids and go, look, man, am I doing everything I can? Of course not. I mean, you know, very few people do. And those people are, are saints and incredible, or they have to. But I'm doing, I'm trying to do a lot and I'm trying to do more and I'm trying to fix things now. And so that my kids go, boy, I got some fucking shoes to fill. <laughs> you know, I, I got to do better. And this is, you know, one of those climate change things. People go, oh, how can you have kids? Climate change, this and this. It's like, because it's very clear to my kids that they need to be part of the answer. Yeah. <laughs> they, don't, they don't get to just ride the ride, man. I make it obnoxiously clear every single day. And I hope with my writing and, and our conversations that I'm, I'm leaving that if I get kicked off the planet today. Um, but it's that it's, it's, um, I think some of it is also having loss. I mean, my best friend died 10 years ago from cancer out of nowhere. And it makes you realize again, things putting in focus very quickly, like, oh, this, this whole thing is real short real short, and it can get taken away real fast. I mean, he got a cancer that's usually seen in over 65 black men who smoked their whole life. And he was like a 30 year old college soccer player who ran marathons and we drank and had fun, but he didn't do any of that stuff. He was gone in three months. And you go, you were saying, right? You want to be optimistic, uh, but it's easy to put your head in the sand and go like, whatever happens, happens. 
and I, I had this great conversation with a very good friend afterwards. And um, I always remember it because I immediately became, like you were saying with addiction and leaving a clean life, I immediately was like, oh, if that can happen to him, yeah. get this cancer that he shouldn't have, then I need to go even further and I need to live like the cleanest life I possibly can, right? To much to my wife's chagrin, I'm very annoying about it, right? No meat, no dairy. I, don't, I barely I drank this and that. I exercise all the time. It's so obnoxious. And at the same time, my friend goes, and he's, he's the greatest. He goes, but if that could happen to him and it was out of his control, why not just live, man? Yeah. You know? And you're like, yeah, there's a fucking argument for that for sure. Mm-hmm. But whether it's my complete fear of death that my poor therapist has to hear about every two weeks or want, not wanting to leave so early or, or whatever it is, I, I just feel this need to do as much as I can, you know? so that I don't feel hungover every day because I've been there. Um, but also just to do as much as I can. Um, and if people are suffering at 2X, 3X, 4X, 5X, 6X, that's table stakes for you and me, you know? And I'm not going to really uh, judge you if, if you don't go up to that level, but you got to do something, man, mm-hmm. you know? And, um, you know, that's just, again, it's not just the right thing to do now. It's not just feel good. Like clock's ticking. Everything's on fire. Where, where was the, there was a great quote on Twitter. Somebody six months ago in the middle of this thing said, uh, it was in California when everything was on fire and they said something along the lines of can't breathe inside, can't breathe outside. You know, like our pets heads are falling off and you're like, yeah, that's when you got to look around and go like, we got to start over, man. (laughs) This is, this is not going well. And this is the beginning of all that shit. Um, so I don't know, man, I guess it's all those things. And just, just trying to be, it's a uh, reading, reading old stuff. Like it's so easy with all the content online and great new, great creators that are out there and they're amazing, but you can learn so much by reading old books. People have had it the whole time, yeah. whether it's fiction or nonfiction, you know? Um, yeah. You can learn a lot from that and then just try to apply it. I mean, people who are, you know, incredibly smart and empathetic and full of wisdom, but didn't have nearly, you don't have satellites that can watch like methane things explode. And then someone says it on Twitter 10 seconds later, and we attack that company and destroy their public value. Like that shit is like six months old, but somehow you can still learn how to think and how to, how to um, conduct yourself from, from folks like that who, who have seen shit, um, you know, and, and helpful to do it from perspectives that aren't yours. Man, I really appreciate it. Well, that's vulnerable. You have something driving you and you can't quite put your finger on it, but there's something driving you. And I really appreciate that. We've talked a little bit in the past just about how I could be a little bit more involved um, with what you're doing. You know, obviously my wife- But you're doing really cool healthcare stuff, man. What what made you build this whole healthcare business? Exactly what you said. Um, There's 20 million people- that need treatment for addiction and maybe about 5% of them are eligible for it simply because the healthcare model, this is why some of the free market stuff is important to me because in order to actually have a treatment system, you have to talk about money. And when people say things like, what do you mean? You, how are you going to profit off of helping people? It's like, okay, what about the counselors that spent $60,000 to learn how to be a counselor? 
You know, what about the operations people that have to come to work every day and figure out how the billing cycles work? And what about the software you need to keep track of when this person is going where within their treatment cycle, sure. you know? So there's this, there's this two uh, juxtapositions of the conversation that says like, you're helping people, you shouldn't worry about profit. And then there's the other side that says like, okay, but what about the people that need to be qualified to do this work? Like you got to pay them. That's just how life is. And so when I was looking at the financial incentives of treatment, it was just so clear to me that it's set up backwards, where if you put the incentives, it's, it's almost like the, the prison system and the VA system a little bit. I think treatment VA and prison are all very, very similar, where if the incentive isn't for like prison guard unions to stay in labor or for treatment centers to continue to cherry pick these really high profitable insurance companies in like Southern Jersey, you know what I mean? If the actual incentive is six months from now, are they still clean? Six months from now, are they still out of prison? You know, like six months from now, are they healthier mentally than they were? Then people would work in different ways. And so when I just saw this, I thought to myself, this is silly. In-network models make so much more sense from a financial incentive. Um, and it just, it, it just didn't make any sense to me that there's 20 million people. And when you see your friends overdosing in front of you, you know what I mean? Like I grew up in Philly, the heroin problem there is, is really, really terrible. Friends dying in like bathrooms, right? Like you go out to breakfast and then your friend goes to the bathroom, right? And this is the typical thing. Like, let me go in the bathroom and shoot up. And it just sticks with you, you know? And so I can't be an evangelist. Like, I don't have any desire to just serve the world for free all the time and like just sacrifice myself. I want things. And I think and ultimately, here's what I came up with. What could possibly be better than creating something that helps other people, helps provide employment for people, helps provide employment and financial stability for myself and like does good in the world. It's always funny to me that when oil execs make a ton of money, nobody thinks everyone's like, that's like the standard. Like, oh yeah, you're supposed to make a ton of money. But if you're building a business that's generated to actually help people, the conversation is different where it's like, oh, there shouldn't be financial incentive there. Where for me, it's exactly the opposite. Like there should be financial incentive to help people and there shouldn't be financial incentive with what we talked about <laughs> with operations that create externalities. So I think about this shit too much. I sit up at night a lot. I don't sleep a whole lot. I've always just had like a ton of fucking energy and I talk really fast. Welcome. So, yeah. And so the more and more I think about this, I'm just like, this is backwards. It should be the other way. Like the financial incentive for prison systems should be keep people out of prison. The financial incentives for treatment should be keep people out of treatment. But it's opposite. So I just think. Well, and that's why you hear a lot of, and, and that's, that's really thoughtful. And again, I'm, I'm not trying to get rid of capitalism. I mean, I had a whole discussion with uh, Professor uh, Rebecca Henderson at Harvard about, she wrote a great book called Rebuilding Capitalism in a World on Fire. Um, and it's tremendous. And we had a really great talk about, you know, everything from you got to rebuild the business from the inside out. You can't just hire diverse or inclusive people, you know, you have to fucking listen to them and let them set the tone and tell them what you should be working on and what they want to work on and all that stuff. And then apply that to your industry and then apply that to the market, apply that to the world. You can do these things and business has to lead the way because government has been a disaster because it's been pillaged for 40 years and because 
we pass tax cuts without paying for them, without helping people, you know, yada, 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 all this stuff. Um, but there's ways to do it. Like we're really good at business in a fucked up way, but that can be used, you totally. know? And, you know, you hear, uh, you know, good friend I've come to know, uh, is a gentleman named Jay Scott. He runs an organization called Alex's Lemonade Stand. He's co-executive director of his is. life. Liz. And they're out of Philly. Yeah. Um, so Jay and Liz's daughter, Alex, uh, got cancer when she was nine and she died. And before she died, while she was getting treatment, she started a lemonade stand uh, to raise money to pay for other kids to get treatment while she had cancer. Oh. And you're like, Jesus Christ. I mean, uh, like, what am I doing? And they had this decision, which to me, either way these people go, you go, go with what you got, man. They had to decide, our daughter just died. Do we support her dream and keep working with this and make ourselves close to kids who are suffering from cancer every day? Or do we make a clean break? Because we don't want to suffer that way. And when a kid dies, as far as I'm concerned, uh, you get to do whatever you want, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and they decided to build this organization and she died 20 years ago and they raise all this incredible money and it mostly goes to two places. It goes to research and it goes to um, travel costs for families who can't afford it for some of these groundbreaking research things. Yeah. Say somebody's coming to uh, Cedars or someone's going to uh, um, uh, Sloan Kettering but it's a family in South Carolina and both they need to get there tomorrow and they can't afford the flight in the hotel because it's a stay. And what do you do with the family or the parent who's going with them? And Jay gets calls and go, and doctor goes like, I got to get this guy here. Can you help? And he goes, that's, you know, what we're here for. And it's hard and it's terrible. Um, But, you know, one of the things he always says is like, I want to put us out of business. You know, that's the incentive. Yeah. If there's anything that shouldn't fucking exist in the world, it's the words like kids cancer. Like, come on. And he knows personally, he's like, I, I want it out of here. I don't want to do this, you know? And and that's so powerful and that's where it should be. And and we can design those things. I mean, you read, like you said, the prison system. You can't read, you know, Dr. Michelle Alexander's book, uh, The New Jim Crow, and not go, Jesus Christ. Yeah, like this has to be a thousand percent better because the layers again. It's a system that it's not broken. It was designed this way. When yeah. you have things like we put prisons in white districts because in the census we count prisoners, uh, and so that gives white districts more voting power, but we don't help the districts where they came from, so they get less power. And you're like, oh, it's just a flywheel of really just like burying these people forever yeah. and ever and ever, ever since we stopped reconstruction. Um, but there has to be incentives, like you said, that are based on recidivism, that are based on treatment, that are based on not coming back, you know? Exactly. Um, and there's ways we can do that. And we all, but we also have to at the same time have to look at it. And when you look at these families that overprescribe, you know, that benefited from opioids being, Oh yeah. Uh, Prescribed for four yeah, years. The Sacklers it's like, what made like forty yeah. billion dollars or something. You should go to jail forever. Yeah, forever. Or Martin Shakir, whatever that guy's fucking name is. You know, you're just like goodbye. You're like you're done. You know, and we have to both penalize those people to the harshest degree, but also make it so that that cannot happen. Mm-hmm. Like that is not okay. 
And but there are ways to build these things so that they work and so they make sense. I mean, important unimportant is not a charity. Uh, I didn't design it to be that way. It doesn't make any fucking money. Uh, but that hasn't been my point. My point has been to to put out the best thing I can to make impact. But it's not a charity for a number of reasons. Uh, my wife and I contribute uh, at least ten percent of our income to to highly effective organizations um, to help people that don't look like us. But at the same time, um, I think I can do some good with it not being a charity. Yeah, you know. I agree. Um, while also using the money from it to fund things that, that are, that do better work. Because, you know, one of the conversations my wife and I had early when I became very invested in all these things, metaphorically and, and, and fiscally was, why don't you just go work for one of those things, um, you know, and, and get in there. And it's an interesting thought and conversation. And there's a lot of people who go like, yeah, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go make it my work. Um, but I think I can have more of an impact um, in a generalist way affecting more of those places and letting the people who are really good at that work do okay. that work. Cause I'm not that person and I'll never be as talented as in it raising money, which is what they spend so much time doing or how specifically they do it. You know, when my friend died and, and before when he got cancer and my young cousin before that who, who survived got cancer, I looked around and I said, not a scientist, terrible flashcards, not a doctor, same, same problem. Like just did a terrible job at AP bio. Um, not a journalist, like, what is the thing I can do? And you'll appreciate this because we talk about going to church. I was like, oh, I can sweat. Like this is, for sure. I am, there's one thing this body is capable of mm -hmm. and I can do that. And my cousin had leukemia and there's an organization called the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And they have a fundraising arm called the Team in Training. And it's been around for, fuck, I don't know, 25 years. And it's incredible. And you, in your locale, I can't encourage someone to do it enough. Um, you sign up. And you train with a team. I mean, once we get out of this whole shit hole, you train with a the team. There's programs. Uh, you you work out with them, and you have talks, and and there's groups, and all this thing. And then you run in the gear, and people are cheering on the sidelines, going team and training. I survived lymphoma, and you're just like <laughs> crying the whole time. But you're doing the thing you can do, right? And this is the biggest question, and the most prolific question we get with climate or whatever it might be, especially COVID this year, which is it's really hard to be told like just stay inside. That's the thing you can do because you can do that or choose not to, but it's hard to feel like you're making a difference. And it's hard when you face sea level rise or urban heat or wildfires to go like, what do I do? And so people go like, what can I do, man? And the best answer is, Tim, what can you do? Yeah. Whatever you can do. And because everybody, you know, has a Liam Neeson, like very specific set of skills mm -hmm. and whether it's art or design or writing or legislation or, or being an attorney or running a company or fundraising, you can just sweet talk people out of checks. Great, we'll take it, you know? Whatever the thing is, make movies, documentaries, you can do everything, you know, you'd be a nurse. Um, and we need all of it and you can do that, you know? And this seems to be the thing where I can be most effective for now at least. Yeah. Um, so like you said, we have to design these things so that they can work and so they, can make a difference because we have to measure them in impact. You know, we have to bring those numbers down. Um, yeah. So that's real powerful, man. I am, uh, I'm going to take a couple hours after this and just think about how I can get more involved. I know we've talked about it before. I think about it a lot. Um, I, I always tell myself like focus on the addiction stuff. That's where I can be most uh, helpful. But at the same time, I, 
I just have a calling to also be involved with, with nature and climate. So uh, we can talk after this. Man, I'm Absolutely, like, man. But don't discount what you're doing. I mean, totally. you can look at it as like most people aren't doing much, but like, you know, this so well Yeah. from your own experiences personally and watching friends and family and where you're from and this and this, and because of the news we've seen and you're a, a technical nerd. So, you know, you can apply some skills to that. You can build it from SEO front. And that's a specific thing that like nobody had done yet. So one of my best friends works for a research hospital in Southwestern Virginia. And that's where people are heavier, they smoke, they don't take their medicine, mm-hmm. all three of those things, fucking nightmare. And because of that, and this is, I mean, the entire US health system, this is a huge issue, is people come to the emergency room instead of going to the doctor, exactly. right? And it's a nightmare for a, a thousand different reasons. Um, and his entire job is he's a data nerd and he's trying to figure out how to get people to stop coming to the fucking emergency room to go to the doctor to take their medicine, which also makes healthcare costs come way down. Um, and that's something he can specifically do because of where he is, because of how his brain works. And like, no one had really been working on that there as much as they're doing all this cool research and helping people and all that. This is a specific problem that he's like focused on. And like with your healthcare stuff and doing like SEO for business, it's like, look at the way telehealth has exploded and all these things we've realized we've needed in the past year, right? They need help, like exactly the kind of things you're doing. And that's amazing because no one's really, doing that. Yeah, it's really cool that you bring that up. One of the projects I've been working on for the last year and a half is uh, one of the reasons why in-network policies have a hard time getting people into treatment is because a lot of blue-collar jobs like factories, especially I, I live in Nashville and we had to deal with uh, a lot of the car factories around here. And it's difficult for them to train employees. Um, and I, I actually got to head out of here, but let me tell you this story. Yeah, please. It's difficult for them to train employees. So when they lose an employee to treatment, um, one of the biggest problems is that they go to the ER three or four times. And since they're in network benefits, it jacks up their insurance rates. And so again, it's just this constant cycle of like, we need to keep the employee because paying to train another one is hard. But every time we keep this employee, it's even harder because it jacks up our insurance rates. And so um, we worked really, really hard on creating these contracts and network contracts, basically, that are incentivized by if somebody comes through this treatment program, um, it's biweekly monitoring with the whole intention of two things, keeping them employed so that they pay federal income tax and keeping them out of the ER. And it's like those two things, those two very, very specific incentive points, like we talked about before, will completely change the insurance billing problem with treatment. That's all you got to do. Keep them. And and this is cool because then you're not even talking about weird subjective things like keeping them sober because that could mean something different to everybody. But if somebody goes through treatment and you focus on two things, making sure they have a job, which means they pay federal income tax insurance and stay out of the ER, those two things alone will like solve this huge financial implosion that we've had with addiction treatment. So I agree, man, find something specific you can do, find however you can be helpful. And um, I think it's so cool, man. I'm, I'm like really grateful you're a person, Quinn. I appreciate all your work. <laughs> Please tell my wife that. I will. Um, no, man, I, I appreciate the conversation. It's uh, sorry to go on and on and on and on. That's and on. important. I really but, enjoyed uh, it. Thank you so much. Um, I believe in being forthright and transparent about it. Um, okay. So, and again, on my shows, I, well, I probably do talk too much. The goal is to let the guest talk. So uh, it's nice to talk about the business. Yeah.
Well, I appreciate um, it, man. Thanks for what you're doing. I'm so shamed by your room. I need, I have so much work to do here. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's so classy. You like a the guitar that's propped up and I've like barely got a movie. I worked hard on it, man. I said, well, fuck it. If this is like my new space station and 2020 is all right. through here, I was like, I need a six space station. So yeah, it's amazing. compliment does not go unrecognized. Thank I you. could be like in a hostage situation anywhere. Really. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, thank you, man, for the time. This has been awesome. You're doing a great job, dude. Thanks, um, brother. Uh, yeah, let me know what else. All right, man. Keep in touch. All right, buddy. Take care. See ya. Hey, guys. It's me. It's Tim. One last time before we wrap up, just wanted to say thank you for tuning into the podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Please leave me an honest rating. Please follow me on Spotify. It's the best thing you can do to support the show. If you want to find out more, go to timstods.com. Feel free to fill out the contact form to reach out to me personally. I always respond. I appreciate you guys so much. I'll talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one.